Yeah. So essentially what we just did was we said, we went to the sellers and we said, Hey, look, we want, we are, we're going to sell. Well, it wasn't us, but it was our JV partner. We're selling off another one of our properties. We would like to 1031 this into here. We need an extra 30 days to close just to quell any fears and make this go nice and smooth. Here's an extra hundred thousand dollars towards the deposit non-refundable. So in other words, you can use the funds immediately. So in other words, as an operator, I know other investors are romanticizing multifamily investing, and I'm looking to learn from other investors' mistakes. I know you are too, and you found the right place. Welcome to Myers Methods Presents Multifamily Missteps. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Myers Methods Presents Multifamily Missteps. I'm your host, Jerome, and I've got Ryan Naris with me today. Ryan, how are you? Man, I'm just trying to stay healthy and sane. <laughs> are you a lot of, it's a lot of fear-mongering out there right now, and I am totally gullible with that stuff. Yeah, and me too. I think the big thing here, and part of the reason why we created this podcast is so people can get educated on real fear uh, or real things to actually fear, right? And so, you know, do me a favor, tell the listeners a little bit about your background and then we can dive into whatever deals you want to talk about where you've had some missteps. Sure. So I, as of this recording, I'm 32 years old and I subscribe to the lie that everyone kind of peddled growing up. Oh, study really hard in school. You'll get a good job and, you know, you go to good university and, you work really hard and you'll be able to retire on a beach. And it turns out, first and foremost, you don't necessarily need good grades to go to a good school. Going to a good school doesn't mean you're going to go to get a great job. And getting a great job doesn't mean you're going to be able to retire the way you want to. And also, it is outrageously unfulfilling. So what I did over the course of, say, 10 years from when I graduated undergrad till now is I just picked up every book I could pick up. I talked to everyone with a pulse who was willing to talk to me. And I just learned, networked, sacrificed, self-assessed, learned who I was, what I was really, truly passionate about. And I started a mobile home park acquisition company. So we've bought 13 mobile home parks as of this recording. I have three more under contract. So by summer, assuming this whole virus thing doesn't completely kill the economy, we could have 16 uh, mobile home parks uh, that we've acquired in the last five years. A lot, of, a lot of hustle, a lot of sacrifice, and a lot of mistakes. So we're definitely going to talk about some today, but that's about who, that's who I am. We've acquired a little over 1,300 pads. And who knows, maybe by the end of the year, we'll have almost 2,000. So we're rocking and rolling virus or no virus. Nice, nice. That's a big portfolio to be so young. So tell me, like, where where have been the challenges? I mean, you guys dived into it. Did you have mentorship? Like, how did it work? Oh, my gosh. You know, the beautiful thing about entrepreneurship is there is no right or wrong way of doing it. There's, there's, really, there's no book of entrepreneurship. There's no instruction manual. You just have to go out and have the courage and the action-taking proclivity to just keep going and not stop and not quit. And that, yeah, I mean, every day, I, like I was joking with you before we started, I had to be on the phone for two and a half hours trying to get 
something that amounted to a click in one spot. <sighs> like who's, who's going to ever tell you like, Hey, just FYI, you can't deposit money into your account unless you click one thing and no one tells you about that. And you're like, well, I can't just like not do this cause it's rent week. Like, I don't know what's like, so yeah, I mean, there's just so many random hurdles that life throws you as an entrepreneur and I love it. I love it. It was a lot of sacrifice, a lot of mistakes, a lot of luck to get where I'm at today, but I'm, I'm just an absolute junkie for this stuff. I, I'm in heaven. So tell me what's been the toughest deal so far? Like what's been the biggest challenge you've experienced? Man, it's hard to pick one deal that was of the of the thirteen we've closed. That's been the probably the hardest. I mean, my first one was was really hard because we went to forty banks and got forty rejections. So that was really tough. We had one our biggest acquisition ever was really tough because we were JVing with another company who was ten thirty wanting money and then not ten thirty wanting money, but it was our relationship, so we had to like be the go between, and it was a lot of moving parts. And yeah, I mean, I, almost every single de- property that I've bought, I've bought with full recourse leverage, and so find it so. Anytime that you go into a situation where you know that if you're wrong, they're coming for about everything you have is really, really scary and nerve wracking. Um, but yeah, I mean, we could talk about all sorts of stuff. I mean, from, from let's talk about 1031 deal, let's, let's talk sure. about because, you know, a lot of people may not fully understand what the ramifications are for somebody sure. coming to 1031. So let's, let's do that. So actually, so that one, it ended up getting resolved because our JV partner ditched the 1031 um, idea, but um, I had two other, so basically the solution there was we're going to put up an extra $100,000 non-refundable to buy us an extra 30 days so we could 1031 it. And then the 1031 didn't end up happening. But the reason why I say that for the listeners is that's a tool you can use in your toolbox is you can put up more non-refundable money to get the seller more comfortable with a last minute 1031 and then ultimately not having it, but they have a hundred thousand dollars in the bank that they can use today, which is what we kind of essentially gave them. So that quelled a lot of their kind of um, anxieties about that. But we had two other ones that we just acquired that were 1031s. First was a friend of mine who, who ended up becoming my friend through the process, but he was probably one of the most annoying people to buy from for a lot of reasons. And he's self-aware, which is hysterical. So I'll tell him to listen to this and he'll, he'll joke with me for, uh, for it. But he, he, he was an interesting one because he's about retirement age and long story short, he was going to 1031 about a million bucks into an LP structure that was going to pay him about 10% cash on cash. So he was absolutely jazzed about it to not number one, to be able to defer taxes, but number two, to hit retirement age with a passive hundred grand coming in a year. That's pretty awesome. So it was definitely a win-win for him and us and, and everyone involved. Um, but that was a pain in the butt because I had never done a 1031 from dealing with, a, a, with a, trying to help someone who's never done this before get the QI and get the attorney and, and do all this stuff that I have, I'd never 1031 before. And then the, this one we just closed two weeks ago, 
was a sophisticated seller who'd done 1031s before and he was an attorney. So that was just not a big deal at all. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's just, it all comes with the part for the course for being an entrepreneur. A lot of times you have to go and figure stuff out, even though you're not the one doing it. So I wasn't 1031ing money. I was just buying a property, but because the seller was difficult, I went and I learned a bunch of things and and actually did a bunch of things for him, even though I'm not getting compensated for that. Just because when you're ever, whenever you're closing a property, your goal is to make this as easy as possible for the sellers because you just don't and and it really everyone involved because otherwise mistakes are going to happen, too many hands in the cookie jar, and delays are inevitable. So the the more you can be on it during um, due diligence and closing, oh man, the better. So yeah, a lot of things we could talk about, Jerome. So I want to make sure I got this right. Cause the first, sure. I think we were talking about, you were having a 1031 exchange money and that's for the listeners who don't know what a 1031 is. It's a tax vehicle that people use to push, to defer their taxes after they create a capital gain. And so you have to buy similar real estate, but or you know, similar asset. And you know, if you're buying real estate, you buy more real estate, et cetera. Right. So when you added the extra $100,000 hard for the 1031 that did not happen, that was on your side. You guys were buying in one of your, yep. was a 1031, right? Yeah. So essentially what we just did was we said, we went to the sellers and we said, Hey, look, we want, we are, we're going to sell. Well, it wasn't us, but it was our JV partner. We're selling off another one of our properties. We would like to 1031 this into here. We need an extra 30 days to close just to quell any fears and make this go nice and smooth. Here's an extra hundred thousand dollars towards the deposit, non-refundable. So in other words, you can use the funds immediately. So in other words, that was just a negotiation tactic because truth was the due diligence was done. We knew we were buying the property and we were, we were just in the, the, so traditionally there's 60 days to close multifamily, um, 30 days to do your inspection period, your, your due diligence, and then 30 to close. So appraisals, surveys, the works. And so we had already passed the, barely passed the 30 day inspection period. And so we we're in the financing period. And basically we just went, Hey, look, we want another 30 days, not to, because we think anything else is wrong here. And to sweeten the pot for them, we were just like, here's an extra 30, you know, hundred grand upfront. So again, that was literally just a way to, quell any anxiety. Um, but again, it's, it's a, it's a good tool that you can have in your toolbox and only recommend doing this after the, uh, inspection period is over and you're fully ready to close. What, where did that hundred grand come from? Was it from the 1031 exchange? Mm-hmm. No, that was just from the bank, from our reserves. From your reserves. So you dug, you dug in your pocket. You already, how big was the transaction? Uh, massive. It was 10.5 mil. Um, so yeah. percent. <laughs> you gave him another one. That was huge. Effectively. Yes. Yep. Okay. And then you guys were, why would you do that with your money? Could you have performed without your partner, your 1031 partner? Yeah. Um, yeah, we would have just had to grab someone else. Um, but yeah, I mean, basically you, you split it up based on equity percentages. So if I own 30%, I put up 30 grand of that hundred, but it, I mean, it, it all comes out in the end. It's not an extra hundred grand. It's not like we bought it for 
ten six. We still bought it for ten five. We were just giving them some more of their their money up front to quell the the fears. Yeah. So the thing that I've been wrestling with, right, when I get into the deals that are massive, and you're like, okay, well, if I put all my money up hard and everything that I have is at risk. And I'm working with somebody who's bringing cash, but doesn't have anything at risk. How do I make sure that they perform? And you guys have taken it, you know, what I consider is pretty extreme, right? Here's a hundred thousand hard. We're not getting it back. Blah, 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 blah. How do you, where did the certainty come from that, you know, your partner was going to perform? Lots of trust and lots of documents that are signed and notarized and, (laughs) Attorney up, it's worth every penny. Uh, some attorneys can be outrageously expensive as long as you know they are good. This was not our first acquisition, by the way. Uh, you make sure things are airtight. You make sure the money goes to an escrow, not to the, you know, the, the seller directly. So in other words, you have your bases covered. And no, you know, so in other words, the seller didn't get their money until you know, all documents were, were, additional documents were signed and money was sitting in escrow. So that way it wasn't, yeah, that kind of makes sense. Wow. Wow. You- when, when, it comes, when it comes to your money, you need to take the extra precaution. I, like I'll give you a good, for example, today, um, we had a, a guy do a roof job for us and he was expecting to get paid like the same day. And a lot of contractors do that. They'll, they'll be done with the work and they'll be like, where's my money? And they won't realize you, really traditionally you should allow for a net 30. But the truth of the matter is, if I was a contractor, um, if you got to look at it from their perspective, one thing that you could push for if you're uncomfortable getting a deposit up front is basically using an escrow agent. So that way you have a third party person saying, okay, this person performed, now this person's going to perform. Absolutely worth your time and your money to, to really um, make sure you have the documents in place and the money in escrow. Wow. Okay. So you said that that 1031 didn't happen. So how did you guys end up closing the deal? Oh, I mean, we had, we had the bank already set up and everything. It was just a question of where the, all that money, their, the JV partner's money was going to come from. So they just took it from a different account. Okay. And so they just paid taxes on it and moved on or they right. on somewhere else or something. You know, actually, that's a good question. I don't, I don't know if they 1031 it somewhere else or if they just paid the, the, um, the tax on it. But yeah, I mean, they ended up just going, all right, we're just going to take money from another account and just forget the whole 1031 thing because there's a complication there. And What's up, guys? It's your host, Jerome. I just want to let you know we launched Myers Methods in the fall of 2019 with the ambition to inspire a new breed of multifamily investors. If you are interested in getting into multifamily or scaling your current business, hop over to our website at MyersMethods.com to grab your free four-step guide on how to get the ball rolling in multifamily. Now, let's get back to the episode. Wow happens it's real estate is not like going to the store and buying something it is so so many moving parts i mean we've got one under contract right now where with this whole covid19 thing the permit office is basically trying to say that we're only zoned for like 70 percent of the lots there even though they have over a hundred percent of addresses (laughs) 
So in other words, their records don't make sense. They won't let us talk to their boss. And so we're like, okay, fine, we'll just come and meet you. And then they're like, well, our office is closed because COVID-19. So it's like, you know, everything could be great. You know, you have the bank statements, tax returns, rent rolls, everything matches. And you're like, great, I'll go to zoning and make sure everything's cool with zoning. Oh, just kidding. There's this whole pandemic and we can't talk to each other now. So, yeah, I mean, there's always some bizarre thing in every deal that kind of derails stuff and you just, you've got to be ready for the unexpected. And, um, like I'll, you know, my, my business partner, Ian Tudor isn't on, on this right now, but one big thing that he does, which is outstanding is, oh boy, he will poke you until he gets the right answer out of you. Um, I mean, he's, he's got boomerang on his, uh, email now. And so he'll just literally program like, Hey, did you get my last email? Hey, did you get my last email? Hey, Hey, haven't heard from you. <laughs> and that's, I, our our North Carolina attorney's paralegal told me two days ago, she's like, I absolutely love working with Ian because every close, I know if I miss something, he's already on it. And it's like, yeah, I mean, that's just kind of how you have to be if you want things to go quickly and efficiently is you've got to be on it and, and not afraid to kind of make people angry during the due diligence and closing process because this is your money. I mean, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars. Uh, if not tens of millions of dollars, like you better be sure everything is, you know, every T is crossed and every I is dotted. So tell me how did you went to 40 banks and got refused 40 times and yep. now you told me about a $10 million deal. How did you bridge the gap? What, what happened that allowed you to make that transition? A lot of networking, a lot of learning and a lot of sacrificing. You know, we, we, if you were to ask me 10 years ago, how many millionaires I could call text or email and within 24 hours, I get a warm response from, I would confidently tell you zero, <laughs> you know, I don't know, maybe someone in my family, I don't, I'm unaware of is a millionaire, but no one, I mean, I, I didn't know anyone. I, I, I never read any books and about, it was about 10 years ago where I was like, you know what I need to do? I just need to read books. So I picked up the seven habits by Stephen, Stephen Covey. And then I was off to the races after that. I read um, Rich Dad, Poor Dad and Four Hour Work Week and Napoleon Hill's uh, Think and Grow Rich. And I just, I couldn't stop until, uh, and then I did the same, I took the same outlook with um, meeting people. And so, you know, what ended up happening, yeah, so we went to, so we, our first deal ever was a JV and our J, we were, our, the idea was, hey, we'll use you as training wheels. Like, we'll do the operations. You guys, you know, we'll learn from you. And they're like, great, since this is a learning opportunity for you, why don't you go and procure the bank? And we couldn't. So we basically had to go back to our JV partners and be like, can you do this part? We can't. And they're like, yeah, we got it. So they, so they, it wasn't, it didn't end up being a big deal, but because um, they had like a default option in the back. But I think that's really, really relevant because if we hadn't networked really hard and met folks we trusted, I, I mean, I don't know if we, that had been friends and family money and we got 40 banks to say no. I don't know how we would have closed that. And that's just an important thing. Now, now, you know, 13 deals in, gosh, I fire up my LinkedIn and it's almost like every day I get a new lender reaching out to me being like, hey, I really want your debt business. And it's like, dude, where were you five years ago? <laughs> you know, so a lot of work, a lot of work that, and here's a really important thing, a lot of work that never netted me anything of the, you know, nine out of 10 people I, I've networked with 
have never or probably will never do anything for me. So you have to be comfortable with putting yourself out there and spending a lot of time and, and in a lot of often cases money on folks who will never do anything for you. So what are the tactics? People talk about networking all the time, but how do you actually do that? You have to find out something that's really meaningful to the person that you want to speak with. A lot of folks are easy. I'm really easy. Like, I don't care who you are. If you're unemployed or if you're the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, I want to talk to you and I don't expect anything in return. I am easy in that regard. Most folks are not. So there's a good book called Give and Take. And basically the, uh, the author argues that there are three types of people. There are givers, takers, and matchers. And about 80% of people are matchers. And then the, so in other words, the overwhelming majority of folks that you reach out to, they're going to expect something in return. Now there's some folks who are basically just going to take, 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 and basically you're going to have to twist their arm to get them to give you anything in return. And then there's a handful of folks like me who are just, I don't care. I'm going to give you whatever I got just because I, I thoroughly enjoy helping people. So in other words, the way you've got to look at this is, you know, even with someone like me, I really like helping. So it makes me happy to help people. So really that's what I'm getting right? If I'm going to help you and I'm going to network with you. So what about everyone else? Well, everyone else is most likely going to be a matcher. So in other words, what value can you provide them? A lot of folks are like, well, let me go buy you lunch. Let me go buy you a drink. Let me go buy you a cup of coffee. And that's great. The only thing is you also have to remember like, it's going to be a half hour to you know drive all the way out there. Then you hang out for an hour. Then it's a half hour back. Then I'm realistically not going to get anything done afterwards. You know. So like it's a big time commitment, you know, go grab a cup of coffee, jump on the phone, um, you know, so you got to look for ways to, you know, provide value beyond just like, hey, let me give you a cup of coffee. One great thing that I like to do is I like to connect folks. Hey, you're such and such. I know five people who are lenders, contractors, this, that, and the other thing, other uh, multifamily owners. Like here, let me connect you with some folks. Do you mind if we're in each other's networks? So in other words, what I look to do is I look to almost make people a little bit uncomfortable in how much I'm giving them. So that way, since I know most folks are going to be matchers, that way they feel compelled to help me. I mean, I've, I, dude, I've gotten some hilarious messages where folks are like, dude, can I just give you something? <laughs> like I, I, you, you give me so much. I'm like uncomfortable, but like, that's how, that's my mentality for networking. And obviously there's a million ways you can do it, but you know, my best advice for everyone listening in, like find a way to pump someone else full of value. For me, it's connecting folks. If you don't have a, a lot of people you connect, can connect folks with, it may be giving someone a cup of coffee. Uh, it may be, hey, you really like giving advice, will you give me advice? Um, it may be, hey, let me have like a part-time internship for you and I'll basically run and get your coffee, but I'll, you know, be able to learn, you know, from, from your operation from the front line. So, there's a bunch of different ways, but the way you've got to be looking at it is most people are probably matchers. How can I make this an equal exchange? So I've got two more questions for you. Is there an example of when you tried to network and it just went bad? Oh God, plenty. <laughs> what do you want? <laughs> most ghost you. Some hang up on you. Some people are really mean and nasty. I mean, there's this one really... Uh, guy I was thinking about earlier today, I'm not going to mention his name, but he was not nice to us. And we still kept reaching out to him. And 
Um, he's a really public guy, so I'm not going to say his name. Um, most folks probably have heard of him here. And I mean, we accidentally had him on our distribution lifts uh, once and he kind of responded to us like, oh, I'm sorry, things aren't going as well as you had hoped. And I have that email saved one day. So if one day he's like, he reaches out to me, I'm going to hit forward. <laughs> yeah. I mean that, but I'm a competitive guy. So like, it's, it's funny. Like I don't, like my wife tries to compliment me every now and again. I'm like, honestly, I almost would rather you just be mean to me because that fuels my fire more than being nice. But yeah, no, it, a lot of time. I mean, we've had a lot of folks um, kind of be ugly or, you know, it, it, most folks will just not respond to you. Um, but some folks will be really arrogant. They'll hang up on you. They'll, you know, it's funny. One of my, one of my better friends right now, I called him out for ignoring us. He ignored us for, probably the first two years we were in the business. And now he is so apologetic about it. I'm like, and all, his name's Chris. And I'm like, Chris, dude, to be fair, we were a bunch of knuckleheads when we were starting out. So I don't blame you. And he's like, well, yeah, but I should have seen that you guys were a little different. And it's like, dude, no, we weren't. We were not any different. We just didn't stop. That's it. We just didn't quit. Most people quit. So you were right to screen us out back then. Um, so yeah, be prepared for a lot of ghosting and then your occasional like rudeness. Wow. Wow. So what are some words of wisdom you can give to the listeners? Don't quit, man. I'm not that smart. I went to Wake Forest. It's good school. It's not Ivy. You know, I, I, I didn't start out rich. I was middle-class. I started with something like $30,000 was, uh, what I started my real estate company with. And our gross, our gross revenues are, I think about $2 million a year now. Um, things are going really, really well. And it's not because I work harder than you. And it's not because I'm smarter than you. It's not because I had more money to start out than you. It's not because I had more education than you. It's just that I didn't quit. I mean, that's really it. I, I love reading books. I'm, I'm almost done with Ray Dalio's principles. Um, and I also have, um, a book, uh, I think you're friends with him too. Kenny Corunda out of Boston. He gave me a book on, uh, positive, positive, um, parenting, forget the name of it, but I'm just about to start that once I'm done with Ray's, um, constantly learning, constantly listening to other people's podcasts and reading stuff on LinkedIn, reading blogs, reading the news, um, constantly looking for knowledge, but just really just not stopping, man. Cause God, there's so many days where you're like, like I told you, like on the phone, two and a half hours with rent manager today, for something stupid that I had done to like almost a, a month ago. You just gotta, you just gotta not be willing to stop, man. It's, it's really that simple. I love it. Ryan, if they want to get in touch with you, how can they do that? Tupac is probably my favorite rapper. And he has uh, a song called, I, he, he, he's quoted saying, I ain't hard to find, or at least he wasn't, but like Tupac, I'd like to think I'm cool. Like him, not even close. Um, I ain't hard to find. I'm the only Ryan Naris that I know of in the world. If you Google N-A-R-U-S, my LinkedIn comes up. My website comes up, ArchimedesGRP.com. Like I mentioned earlier, I am, a, I am a giver. If you need anything, I will do what I can to help you out, and I don't expect a thing in return. So if I can help you um, get out there and make the world a better place, reach out to me. I, I am excited to help you in any way I can. That's awesome, Ryan. Hey, guys, I appreciate you making it to this part of the podcast. 
I want you to go out and make a difference in the world. It's not just about making money in real estate. Ryan, thanks for sharing your experiences with us. Talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. You made it to this juncture, so you really love what we shared on this episode of Myers Methods Presents Multifamily Missteps. Do us a favor. Give us a five-star rating. Give us a review. And share this with somebody who's interested in multifamily investing. Until the next time, the pack is with us.